we create products and then we hope to find a reason to, for you to wear it. <laughs> I think we'd like to have a problem and then try the technology to help it. A lot of times we, we introduce technology with the idea that this should be good for it. You go, no, it's the wrong way. We create insulin because we had a problem. So that's the flaw. You have to ask, why did you create it? Was it to solve a purpose or to sell a product? And so the wearables are a phenomenal thing. But that again, technology, medicine are all part of our culture. We just have to figure out how the three of them all play together and improve someone's quality of life. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Wellness at the Speed of Light podcast. I'm your friendly spine surgeon host, Dr. Stefano Sinecropi. We're going to go deep down into the wellness rabbit hole today on episode four with Dan Zeman as our esteemed guest. For those of you that don't know who Dan Zeman is, he is an absolute visionary pioneer in the world of exercise physiology. His illustrious career spans four decades marked by his groundbreaking work in cardiac rehabilitation, where he championed the move from conventional bed rest to active recovery in the post-cardiac event period. This absolutely revolutionized the way that cardiac care is delivered in the United States. As an American College of Sports Medicine certified exercise physiologist, his expertise has profoundly influenced the health, fitness, and sports industry landscapes. His journey took a big turn back in the 1990s when he began working with a newly designed health and fitness facility here in the Twin Cities, allowing him access to a wide array of individuals from all stripes who varied in age, fitness levels, and medical conditions. This experience was instrumental in paving the way for the next two decades of him working with elite athletes and pro athletes and has worked closely with multiple athletes in the NBA, where he served 19 seasons with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And in full disclosure, I'm a huge Timberwolves fan and might be asking him some questions on that if we have time. He's also worked with the NFL and the NHL. One of his most famous athletes that he's worked with is Greg Lamont, whose name is iconic in the world of cycling, being a three-time winner of the Tour de France. Dan worked very closely with him, utilizing his deep understanding of exercise science to demonstrate the unique, measurable metabolic effects of training in a seasonally structured exercise and nutrition program. His work provided crucial insights into mitochondrial changes in skeletal muscles, particularly in athletes experiencing overtraining, which is a huge problem today in our structured training environment world, as opposed to a more free play world of the past. This sparks a broader conversation about metabolic efficiency and inefficiencies in individuals with challenges facing difficulties in burning fat over carbohydrates. He's also extended his focus to occupational athletes such as fighter fires, sheriffs, police officers, addressing their unique fitness needs amongst challenging environments characterized by irregular sleep environments. I know a little something about that. Stress, I know a little something about that and varying recovery periods. And we're going to delve into that today. His research has spanned the aerobic capacities of wheelchair athletes, amputee athletes, young basketball players, mountain bikers, and you name it. 
He's been instrumental in developing exercise testing protocols and heart rate training manuals for wellness centers, and his expertise is sought after by companies developing health and fitness technologies all across the globe. With over 40 years of experience appearing on podcasts, in print media, being keynote speaker at many, many professional conferences, he shared his insights on exercise myths, excessive exercise, and the risks of overtraining and the intricacies of fitness technology, which is growing so rapidly in today's age. And we're going to delve into that certainly today. As an aging baby boomer himself, his recent work focusing on longevity culminated in his book, You're Too Old to Die Young, which is an amazing book aimed at helping the aging population navigate their extended years, which have been extended more by modern medical science, with health and purpose. I'm really excited about his upcoming book, Playing the Back Nine with Purpose. As somebody who just turned 50 myself, having another book that we can go through and learn about aging gracefully is something that selfishly I want to pick his brain about, but also I want to learn as much as I can for my patients and for the general population. As we delve deep into the wellness rabbit hole today with Dan, we expect a rich exploration of his holistic approach to exercise physiology, his work in cardiac rehabilitation, his contributions to sports medicine, and his visionary perspective on health and longevity. So join me today as we pick Dan's brain on everything he knows in exercise physiology. And I'm really, really excited about today's episode. And I hope you're excited as I am. And on that note, let's get started. Dan, I really appreciate you coming on today. To first off, like I told you, I, I appreciate being on. I find you fascinating. And this isn't one of these where two guys off just applaud each other. I, I don't do a lot of stuff unless I'm a big fan of. And I, I think, you know, what you're trying to do from your perspective is to realize that medicine has a role today of being more lifestyle driven and more to the point of asking the patient. And again, you know, one of the comments I make a lot and we talk about healthcare, but healthcare is a statement that people say, I've got healthcare. And you go, no, healthcare means you take care of your health. And if you can't, then you ask the physician, the medical world, but it always begins with you being involved in your own care and you have to be more proactive as a patient. You just can't rely on it. And I find that fascinating that, you know, a spine surgeon comes in and starts talking about mitochondria. And I'm going, hey, I got to listen to more about this guy because that's a guy that said, hey, I can't fix all these people's problems. So I, I find you impressive or I wouldn't be here. And uh, again, thank you. No, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, what I keep talking about is this wellness rabbit hole that I've gone down. And the more I go down it, the more I actually realize how little of some of this information I picked up through my medical school years and then through my training and then became so focused and specialized on treating spinal conditions that I wasn't really looking at the totality of the patient and everything that we need to do to help people's overall health and wellness journey. And that's as important, if not more important than a lot of their spinal issues, because that's just one part of the problem. And so changing people's lifestyle, changing the way that they think about, you know, something we're going to talk about a lot today is exercise, changing the way they think about nutrition, diet, what their lifestyle does 
long-term over decades to where they're going to be, the person who they become. And really, sometimes they don't understand until you tell them in concrete terms how dangerous it is to continue to lead that lifestyle. And I think really giving concrete examples to patients about the differences between living a long, healthy life versus even living a long, unhealthy life and the burden that is not just to themselves, but to their family members and to society is something that I'm just obsessed yeah. about this stuff. And you're the perfect person to, to well, talk I about this. I think what you're saying is that worked when everybody dropped dead at 65. I mean, the, the reality is if you drop dead at 65, an average life expectancy was that. But now, because of your world, the medical world, we've increased longevity. I mean, the boomer generation is the classic one. We were gifted longevity. If you were to look at you know average life expectancy and the great thing, the insurance tables figured that a long time ago, when we're going to pay and how much, that was a business model. But now all of a sudden you see this big bolus of baby boomers who aren't dying young. So you're trying to figure out, well, why do we talk to these guys about that? They're going to be dead in five years anywhere. Well, no, now they may live another 30. And that means no mobility, no agility, cognitive loss. And you're going... So you didn't have to worry about it when you dropped over. And now, again, you, you talk about the aging a lot. And, and I think that's another thing for me is that what are we going to do with all these people who, who can't bathe or can't shower or can't drive or can't eat? And you go, where are we going to house them? And you're going, well, medicine did its job. It kept them alive. And you're going, yeah, but they have no quality of life. And, and so I think that when you go see the 75 or the now the 80-year-old sitting in a nursing home wondering what happened to them, you go, well, I did all my medical exams, but no one ever told me that I should do something other than just come in and, and get checked. Medicine is, is a phenomenal, a pheno it, it, it's unbelievable to me how much I've seen it change from my early cardiac days. Now we're, we're so much proactive of creating these life prolonging procedures. But the penalty is being 95 and not being able to, to bathe yourself or not be able to walk around the room, but being alive, looking out the window at $12,000 a month for a nursing home is not a highlight. And it's certainly, and when I talk to most people, I said, you know, the sad thing is your grandkids' memory of you is looking out the window of a nursing home. They're not going to have like my grandfathers or, you know, the generations before where these guys were always very active and they were, and they, and they died at 65 and you have great memories of them. But watching some guy die ugly and become crabby for the next 10 years, your grandkids and great grandkids don't want to come see you because you're just a crabby old person that's angry about life and the fact no one ever told you you're responsible for your own health care. And again, that's, some people hear that and sound like it's I'm making a statement that's accusative, but the reality is the mammal in you will stay alive because it's being kept alive. So you will choose if it's a blessing or a curse to not die young. No, I, you know, absolutely. You know, one of the things that that strikes me there, and I say this over and over, is I see all these patients and they're relatively young, right? They're 35, 40, 45 years old. And they come to me, they've got pain down their leg. They've got a disc herniation or something like that. And I look at their medication list and I, I it's unbelievable. I, sometimes I'm honest with you. I'm shocked. Like my mouth is open and I just look at them and I said, how did this happen? And then what I always get down to is, do you know what you're going to look like in 10 or 20 years, what your life is going to be like, how miserable you're going to be? And I asked them, when you were in eighth grade, when you were in high school, did you think that, you know, when you were 50, you were going to be this disabled guy because you made poor lifestyle choices? And so, you know, using blunt language like that, and I've never been afraid to use blunt language with my patients. I'm very like accessible and kind of a friendly kind of a doc to, to see. I, I, I don't do a lot of the formal stuff, 
But when they see me, I just tell them point blank, you are headed towards disaster as many other people are. I've seen it before and it's unreal that there's no accountability. They're just sitting around waiting for somebody to like, for me, they want me to fix their leg pain. And then they want the internal medicine guy to give them medicines for this, their psychiatrist to treat their depression, their endocrinologist to, you know, give them more diabetes medications when they could just do intermittent fasting and reverse it most of the time. And so it's really frustrating. And sometimes no one's given them that wake up call. And I absolutely just, I just say, you got to make some important changes and you got to do it now. You know, when you mentioned the, the diabetes stuff, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty interesting that when I first got out of grad school, there was these insulin-dependent diabetics. And again, before insulin, they were all they never saw the grandkids because they were dead. So now you get this great life-saving medical advancement. But so you were a type one diabetic. You were then considered to have gestational diabetes if you during pregnancy, if it was something with your sugars, and, and usually it was because of the weight gain, but it could have been other factors. So we're not just going to stick to one thing, but just keep it broad for you. But then there was this diagnosis of adult onset diabetic, but it took people to be 50, 55 years old before they became obese enough, or their sugars came out, or the endocrinology system didn't work very well. So again, it was those three things. But if you go back and say, well, okay, let's talk about fat cells. When are they introduced to the person? They're introduced that last trimester, the first year, and then through puberty. So on the bottom, evolution of the mammal says, nope, they still introduce fat cells during their last trimester. They still introduce in the first year, and they go through puberty. Okay, so we're not, we're not getting more fat cells. They're at the same time. Yet how do we then all of a sudden as the medical community say, I've got a 16-year-old 260 pound male or female that has type one diabetic? No, he has adult onset. Well, he can't be adult because he's only 16. Well, let's just change the name so no one gets offended and call it a type two. And I'm going, well, you're not going to change gestational. You're not going to change that one. So in some ways, that was the first to me where medicine, I think, failed to come up and say, your age is your body is actually the age of what it used to take a 50-year-old to get to, and you're doing it at age 16. And so to your point about being blunt, you can change the tame, but the, the reality is you should have said, we don't see this in 16-year-olds. It used to take another 30 years in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s for this to show up. But we said, nope, you're a type 2 diabetic, and we got to put you on medication. And I think, unfortunately, they lost an opportunity to objectively show them without shaming them, but just to say, we don't see that. I mean, we wouldn't see with osteoporosis, you wouldn't say if a person shows up that has weak bones at 15 years old, you'd say, boy, you know, that that's just, you, you, we have a whole new diagnosis name for you. But the name was called adult onset for a reason. It wasn't called type two. So medicine, I think, failed on that one. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And then not only is it a kind of a failure in that way to really be blunt with people and just be honest about how man-made this right. the crisis is i talk about it constantly but then also the way that society has made it acceptable to just rely on medication management of all these things and people really fold in i mean they really fold into that and so one of the things i talked about on my last podcast with the former white house medical officer was the fact that in many communities and i wanted to stress that it's i see it across the board even even in some you know affluent in my affluent population where people just think, you know what, even if I get these diseases, I'll just get a pill from my doctor. I'll just treat it that way. The problem is, is that 
yes, we can get your blood sugar down by putting you on certain medications, but the damage that's being done by that insulin resistance and your metabolic overall health is deteriorating day by day. So it's causing cardiovascular disease, memory changes, dementia types that we can go on and on about the dangers of being metabolically unhealthy, but people are reliant, too, too reliant on the medical system and medical care of something that man has essentially created. And I love the way you look back. I'm a big proponent of that. I tell my, I mean, and it is true looking back on, on high school photos from the 19th or, or look at like beaches from the 1970s and compare it to a beach, a beach. Now it's unthinkable. And it's not that people didn't have food. There was a lot of people and they were eating a lot of food, but again, between our lifestyle, the, Foods we eat, processed foods, our exposure to toxins, I could go on and on and on. It's turned into this downward spiral of a metabolic health crisis. And again, people are just too reliant on the system to quote unquote fix them without taking self-inventory and saying, you know what, I can change this myself. Yeah, and I, and I I put a lot of that also, again, I'm not blaming medicine on that because they they have a, a bowls of people coming through, they got to figure out what to do. But I, I still think parents have a responsibility in that decision. I mean, we did a study that was great to be involved in looking at inner city childhood obesity compared to rural childhood obesity. And I think now, unfortunately, the questions that I asked part of that study would not be allowed because I think it would be, someone would view it as politically incorrect or something. But I, I asked, you know, a couple of basic questions is how many times do you go to the grocery store to these third, fourth and fifth grade boys and girls inner city compared to the rurals and thinking that, Again, my baby boom generation at 67 years old, so I was born in, in uh, 57 and my wife was born in 52. Yeah, I remember going to the grocery store all the time and, you, that, and that's how you bought food. And then I said, what's your favorite recipe? And they were staring at me like, what is a recipe? We don't know what that means. And I said, so, you know, you put something in and then you stir it and then you put something else in and prepare. Incredible. And I, and I said, and what time do you go to bed? And the inner city, and again, it, it's, it's just a statement. So don't shoot the messenger on this one. The inner cities would ask that question. Do you mean weekdays or weekends? And I was like, I didn't know there was a difference. And they said, well, it's usually 11 o'clock on weekdays, but then 2 a.m. on weeknights. And as far as recipes, you know, again, I remember, and this is when this is when you always feel like you're an old man, just you know, complain about society. But when the first Burger King, I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota. The Mayo Clinic was there. You know, it was a phenomenal facility. When the first Burger King came in, I remember my mother was a nurse. We drove by, and she goes, "We are never going in there." <laughs> I said, "Come on, you can get a burger for fifty cents. Why would we go home and eat it?" I mean, to me, it was it was convenient, but. Box foods, I mean, Cheerios, I mean, you you look at those endials, they sell box foods for a reason. I mean, it's so why was it, at some point the parents go, you know, I'm going to show you some recipes that your grandmother made or your aunt made, and we're going to pass these down. This is how you eat healthy, as opposed to saying, you know, let's just swing through Dunkin' Donuts. So if somebody makes a decision for that, and the great news with diabetics and cardiacs when I first started, the endocrinologist came in and said, we're having a team because these seven-year-olds to 12-year-olds don't buy groceries. They don't cook their own meals. Someone cooks them for them. So they were introduced the habit of fast foods. So culturally, that's all they know. So when you start talking about nutrition to a, you know, a kid, they'll look at you like, well, what do you mean a recipe? I don't know what that means. We just put in a box, you put in the microwave and it's you know three minutes and we tear the bag open, eat it with the... So 
that's not the medical that I still, that's, that's still culturally driven by the, how they eat at home, which is another unfortunate problem. Absolutely. And you know, it's spreading, it's even worse in our society. I mean, the lack of understanding, I don't want to say across the board, but with a large majority of the population, they don't realize the damage from processed foods. It's incredible. And, you know, a lot of these guys that, you know, I personally have been using to follow and and to learn about like really hardcore nutrition, again, the stuff that I didn't really pick up from medical school. I mean, they really emphasize, I mean, things either have a label or they don't. There's a reason why a banana does not have a label, right? Steak doesn't have a label because it's just food. And what we've gone away from is that just food and everything's become processed food. And the amount of additives in there, you know, it pushes 3000. There's not a lot of control of the additives. I mean, there's some stuff on the banned list, which I've talked about before, but there are a lot of things that should be on the banned list that cause really they worsen the metabolic crisis. And so in those inner cities, it's even worse because they don't even have access to grocery stores, right? That's the culture that we've we've created and we've allowed it out of out of convenience. And it goes back to the same thing. Give me a give me a drug like for the statins. And there are people well educated say, I don't want to change my diet, but the statin will make it so my cholesterol is better and I'll just keep eating crappy food. So it's a crisis. And I that's again why I applaud you as a physician is that somebody has to stop from the medical world, come and give me this, and I'm going to go back and continue my bad habit. But, you know, conversely, I will say this, you know, my wife says it to me a lot. She said, you know, as a kid growing up, we never thought of drinking water. And now you kind of go and you go. So that was a generation that actually ate healthy, but were dehydrated most of the time. That's true. They never thought the value of hydration states. And you look at it going, really, you didn't drink. Well, I wasn't thirsty. And now, you know, every medical says if you're thirsty for these 10K runners or 5K runners, it's too late. If you're thirsty, you should drink before that. But now you look and you go, how come we were so dumb in 1950 and 60 about water, but yet we were really good on vegetables? But despite the fact that they were dehydrated, I got to say, they, they looked a lot better than what well, a slice of yeah. Americana looks like. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that, and I brought this up before, is there was this study out of Tufts and it looked at 55,000 people cross-sectionally in America. Only 7% of people are metabolically healthy. That's how far down this disaster you know, we've gone and and that's why I thank you for your kind words, but that's why as a physician, I can no longer sit on the sidelines. And I know it's weird for people because I could tell you some of my colleagues, they're like, man, this guy's going off the rails. He's all, he's always talking about wellness and nutrition, the microbiome. Why do you care? You put, you put screws in people, right? You decompress the spinal cord. Why do you care? I care because I've seen thousands of patients and I'm literally, I can't, I don't have a better word. I mean, I'm heartbroken. But what I'm seeing out there and so many sick people, and when I tell you, Dan, and again, I'm not trying, it's a lot of it is cultural pressures and what people see and a, and a general cultural brainwashing. It's the culture. So I don't want to necessarily blame people, but I want to wake them up so that if they are knowledgeable about it and then they choose not to do something, at least somebody's told them. Because some of the people I see, they've seen so many medical professionals and no one's even told them. No one's ever said, you are a 
absolute disaster. I, I don't, that's how I talk to my patients. I'm like, you are a ticking time bomb. The fact, if you're here in five years, I'll be shocked. So start making changes or deal with what you need you to know, deal with. You go back in your world again, you're putting screws in people, but if that bone is getting rotten for the next 20 years of your life, you're going, I can't, it's, it's kind of like you say, okay, <laughs> I have a deck in Northern Minnesota that's frozen, you know, and you keep putting a pound it and you get, we'll just get a longer screw and we'll hopefully find good wood. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But this is only this thick. You can't go any farther. It's that you're putting into a sponge. So you can't save that spine because the bone is bad after a while. And you're going, oh, well, the problem is if you were dead at 70, we could do it. But 90, we could, there's nothing left. You're screwing a bone. You're screwing into a sponge. I make the analogy. And I'm sorry about you. I, I, some guys like you always are amazing <laughs> to me. What you think of, I come up with these thoughts. I drove a, a Jeep in Minneapolis when I was there. We're down in Arizona now, but, and it had 150,000 miles on it. So I had one guy who was always fixing my car. And this is, this is the non uh, the mechanic who is actually a physician, but in your world, I came in and I said, okay, what do we need to fix on? He goes, well, he goes, you know, I don't think we need to put the hundred thousand mile guaranteed tires on this one. And I'm going, <laughs> and he goes, no, I think what we should do is let's fix the things that are going to be gone in 50. And, you know, it was kind of interesting because even he understood at some point, this whole thing is going to die, this car and, and just like humans are, but let's not put a lot of ex expensive tires on a car that has a bad engine. Let's fix the engine because that's what's going to go next instead of putting the extra. So I think the objectiveness of your statement with spines is quite valid because the side effects of the medication will eventually, because they're not dying, are going to make your bone problem. And you're going, I'm not the problem with this. My surgery was great. You accelerated it and you're living longer. Now you make my surgery look bad. I'm not the one who made my surgery bad. Your bones are the one that deteriorated and that's on you. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up, like bones being sponges. I mean, we deal with that anyway. So we have at Midwest Spine and Brain where I've been for my entire career, you know, we have an entire protocol to work people up for osteoporosis and these other things. And osteoporosis, obviously, it's a combination because part of it is going to be genetic factors. You know, your mom had osteoporosis, fair skinned people, people that have other metabolic things that are really more of a genetic thing. But there's a lot of man made part of it. It's interesting because if you put people through DEXA scans randomly, right? You're going to pick up so many younger and younger patients now that have osteoporosis changes. And so a lot of that is dietary, is inadequate intake of vitamin D levels, which we could talk about for hours because vitamin D is just one of the most important hormones in our, in our bodies, calcium intake, other things. But a lot of it is also exposure to processed foods, as well as exposure to toxins that people don't even know about. I mean, just even heating up like plastic in a microwave. I mean, all those microtoxins and, and dysfunction in your mitochondria can cause all kinds of, you know, havoc with all your systems, including your endocrine system, which then develops osteoporosis and other changes in, in, in your bony health. So that's a whole other rabbit hole that, that you know, we can go down. It's an interesting point with the DEXA. Again, that technology is phenomenal. I mean, it just is, is safe. Right. So, so the, the diagnosis of osteoporosis, like, for example, when we used to underwater weigh Asian women, I would never do it because the reason they didn't sink was because their bone density was lighter. So we, the algorithm assumed right. that it's yes. bone density. But the reality is when you look at the bone density and strength training, it was always thought that as long as you were doing strength training, you'd also turn the bone over to what you guys would call osteoblastic and osteoclastic activity where the bone density keeps turning over. 
so it was always these lighter people who had osteoporosis. You never saw the 170 pound female because the strength training was walking up and down the steps. It was that was she was so mobile. So in essence, she was doing a leg press, a leg extension every day of her life at 170. Absolutely. And wasn't. But yet I, I read something about how the, the rise now in osteoporosis is now on sedentary. This is just, again, more women have osteoporosis than the men do. So the statement was the biggest rise in osteoporosis is in 170 pound sedentary female. Mm-hmm. Where I never thought we go, how do they, and you go, wait a minute, it was sedentary or is it their age? Or in your case, what you just said about the food, but you would never have ever thought someone who was moving 170 pounds up and down this, up and down the stairs all the time was going to have weak thigh bones. And you go, no, there must be more to it. And so you're absolutely correct about the food, but those side effects are now being known, but it's still, it's still on you to say, or the person to read that and say, yeah, I need to look better because again, if I dropped over dead at 60, it's fine, but 90, I'm not going to be able to walk around for 30 years. No, absolutely. You know, it's, I just spoke to a physician about a month ago, we were talking about DEXA scans and, and how important they are now even preventative DEXA scans earlier on. So he did a little micro experiment. So he took a bunch of sedentary women in the office where he worked. He told everyone in the building, he had a DEXA scanner. He was new in that building. He said, you know what? I'll scan everyone in this building for free. And they're all sedentary workers, right? They work in offices. He said that it was shocking for him personally to see the large number of people that had osteopenia at a very young age. And what he did with them is he put them on a strength training program, the ones that would, you know, listen, and he put them through pulsed electromagnetic frequency devices. And he said the combination of that, when they came back a year later, just those two small changes made a huge difference, you know, in their bone densities. It was just an interesting thing. It wasn't an official study, but it just, it fits with what we're talking about right now. And again, that's why for you, I mean, you live in one world, but yet you have so many things that affect it. And so it's a, a very profound, so I, I think it's interesting. We, when we So when we were underwater weighing the Timberwolves, I did that for 17 years, but, uh, you know, I always thought we should use a DEXA scan on these guys because it was better. But the problem with the DEXA scan is the seven footers. And this is, this is not, you might find humor in this, but I, I of course tried not to laugh about it. So they asked me the question of, so when we underwater weigh and, and, and end up just doing skin folds on these guys because their subcutaneous fat's easy to grab onto and it's really reliable with me. I've been pinching people for 40 years. But the DEXA bed isn't long enough for the seven-footers. That's, so, that's, so, you, so you lay down and you ask the question, is it better to have their head and cut their feet off or put their feet on and, and cut their head as if one stored more fat than the other? Not okay. You know, I, I just, I'm not going to comment on that one because these guys are much bigger than I am. We'd rather scan your feet than your brain because there's nothing in your brain just doesn't come across. <laughs> well, it just, that's not a statement you make publicly to a guy that is much no, bigger. No, not a guy that big. Nope. <laughs> but it was, the DEXA scan is phenomenal. It's just, they need a longer bed if you're going to do the NBA guys. So one of the things, you know, when we could, we could go down all kinds of rabbit holes. I think I just want to get some basic terminology for people that are listening to this or watching it. Exercise physiology. Can you define that in a short, I can't, but can you define it in a short version? I I think what you have to figure out is exercise is nothing more than movement. Okay. We created this, you know, Jane Fonda created this exercise dance class, but really it's, I mean, I've said to many people, you know, your heart doesn't know what you're doing. Your heart doesn't know you're running. It doesn't know what day it is. It just knows that it's beating. Your biceps don't know you're lifting weights. 
But inside the mammal, there's these systems that are involved like peak strength. So three seconds and under is where ATP is made or stored. So twisting a jar, for example, you'd never twist a jar for 10 seconds. Either it opens up or it doesn't. You don't just keep turning it saying, okay. So that gear, if you think of it, you have these gears and, and metabolically, that's how you move. And so you have peak strength, you have muscle endurance, which is usually 15 seconds to 30 seconds. And you'll see this, for example, beginning a leg extension, or if you see someone run up a flight of steps, you have other muscle endurance gears that at the skeleton involves making an ATP, but also buffering lactate. And eventually you get into this cardiovascular steady state where your heart rate can go up and say, okay, I got you now. I'm going to make fat as a fuel and we can steady state this so I can walk or hike or hunt. And so the mammal goes through these and you'll see it in nature on other mammals, for example, a cheetah will not just run after an animal that he's trying to eat, you know, without stopping. It goes, no, no, I'm going to, I got 10 seconds to make a deal. Uh, Wayne Gretzky used to say this thing about hockey. You know, he's not out there to skate around. He's out there to score goals. So yeah. in essence, you have these, you have these gears inside the mammal and the concept of exercise is like a physical therapist. How do we train that one system and not the other ones or at the expense. So for example, a guy who was going to be a world record in the mile is not, even though his heart rate goes up, we wouldn't train him like he was going to do a 10 K or a marathon. So the physiology simply says, what are the tasks we're trying to get the mammal to do? And then how do we train that? So he's, he's more accessible to do it. And then sometimes you step back and I'm amazed how stupid you are. You know, people would say, I'll bet these swimmers are phenomenal endurance athletes. And yet they don't test very well. And you go, well, first off, we don't test them in the water, but right. swimming is a skill sport. So your stroke efficiency is what makes you go faster. So you can swim faster and not really improve your cardiovascular endurance. You go, but if you're a runner, the only way you run faster is improve your running. So you improve your cardiovascular endurance. So again, you got to figure this out. And cycling was the other one is that you know, once you're going 18, 19, 20 miles an hour, you have frontal resistance against you and you have the ability to push in the pedals. So you ask, what's the better thing? And you say, well, become more aerodynamic because that's exponential. So you're going, so then you go, okay, don't pretend you're going to out, you know, we're going to ride sitting straight up into a 20 mile an hour headwind and say, well, just push harder. You go, why don't we just, I mean, semi-trucks figured this out a long time ago. They, they would behind somebody and get, catch their draft. So you have to understand the biomechanics or understand the limitations, but the reality from exercise physiology is saying, what do you want this human to do and how do you train them as if you were a physical therapy, putting someone in a return to play from an ACL or from an elbow injury, and then how long can they do it? Can they sustain it across their lifetime? And then what is the problems of not having good cardiovascular endurance? So for heart attacks, or for, you know, if you look at even some of the neuromuscular stuff with Parkinson's, is it the nerve or is it, can you, can you train the muscle? So in a way it's very complicated. I think we, we started with cardiac because it was the first big thing that said, this isn't really a strength thing. Their heart stopped or has a problem. How do we get the heart to continue to pump at a steady state? How do we know that? And so, you know, that's where I started in, uh, you know, the early eighties. And unfortunately it sounds like 40 years ago, but it, it was, <laughs> but you know, you asked me about that before. And what was interesting about it is that there was huge pushback on getting cardiacs to walk. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, literally, and it's only funny now because with the firefighters, they call them commode or codes. 
So all these people have a dying, having a bowel movement. When they get a 911, they go. The, so I said, you know, it was interesting 44 years ago when Dr. Herb Schoening came over from the Polio Institute, where they got people to walk with polio as an endurance. He said, the normal bed rest is seven days if you have a heart attack. You, you come in and you lay in bed for seven days. And that's if you survived the first heart attack, which very few people did. Now we have much more 911, we have a bunch of stuff. But they died having bowel movements. And so they would go into the toilet and they were so constipated and had this Valsalva maneuver and that triggered their second heart attack. And so they crawl back in bed and they would say, well, the good news is your father died in bed. Well, he didn't. He died having a bowel movement. And I remember the firefighters today, you, you go, come on, that's that's just folklore. And I was interesting. I was telling this backstage at a, at a musical show with, with Merle Haggard. And he said, well, I was at, that's Elvis. And I said, well, OK, Merle, let's not talk about Elvis. But the firefighters to this day with EMTs will tell you, you can't believe how many how many of these calls we get where our person is on the toilet. So the idea of getting them to walk was nothing more than at least they're not going to die in the toilet, but that's how they justified it. But the cardiologist who did the surgeon said, you're not putting my guy on an airdyne bike where his arms are moving. No way. No way. That is completely wrong. This guy has to rest. His heart was overworked. He has to recover. He has to lay in bed. And now, you know, you can do quintuple bypasses and the very next day they're standing up. In fact, they have to be standing up. And again, you, you kind of go, why would it take so long? But that's where we started. And so the dosage was, you know, what can we get these people to do? But again, we didn't have telemetry back then. So work was the thing we had. It was complicated. But again, it's kind of like going back to the days without a cell phone, thinking that, you know, grandma used to have a, a dial phone and she used to call. So it's contrasting. But exercise physically, physiology first started with the heart. And that actually was driven by Ken Cooper out of the Cooper Center in Dallas. But that's where it started. And now we go into a lot of different sports and track and field is the simplest because each distance has its own metabolic right. system. So you train a 400 meter runner different than a mile or different than a 5K or a 10K. And then the other sports are different. But I don't know if that helps you. That was that you asked for a short answer. I'm sorry. That was probably the longest short answer you're going to get from me. Actually, it's a it's a fascinating answer. And I never heard about the commode calls before. That's really fascinating. But oh. the fact that you were able to create such a shift in the thinking on cardiac rehab is actually it's incredible. It's one of the things is, you know, as I was researching for this show, which which was fascinating because I, I honestly I didn't realize that that's not something that we talk about in med school, like the before time we talk right. about what do we do now? And it makes perfect sense now. It, it doesn't make any. And, you know, like we you know what we had mentioned right before we started the show, it's just the same thing about how aggressive we are with moving our surgical patients. People know that from whether you're having your a colectomy surgery to whether you're having a spine surgery, the faster people start moving, their physiology gets back on track and they heal much, much faster. And that's without even the other overlay, because I was going to ask you. It, there's a lot that has come out recently about how important it is to have strong social networks in terms of cardiac rehab. But that also, I see that very clearly when people have strong social networks, when they're recovering from any surgeries or the surgeries I do, especially when they're, they're big, you know, huge scoliosis surgeries or something like that, the power of the social network and social support makes such a big difference. What has been your experience as far as social networks and healing? 
Yeah, let me let me back up. So Herb Schoening, I think, gets the credit in Minnesota for cardiac rehab. He came over from Sister Kenny with the polio, and they start them walking. So he just, I just answered the phone in Dallas, Texas, and he says, "Hi, Dan. My name is Dr. Schoening. You want to move back to Minneapolis and shovel snow?" And I go, "Not really, but tell me about this cardiac rehab." But your point is very valid, and you'll love this. I hope. I mean, because I think you have to find the humor and what you think is science, and then the reality of human beings is different. I mean, they're not gerbils. So you have to understand why people change behavior. But in the cardiac rehab center, I first set it up and I, I still, the, there's this side of my brain that's very objective. So I was worried about the color of the carpet. I was worried about the, the pictures on the wall, were they too masculine, too feminine, too athletic? Because a lot of these people, you know, until the exercise movement, they were gardeners. I mean, they never thought of lifting a weight. No one thought that was just pathetic to come in. And I mean, structured exercise was like, like the hula hoop to them. It just didn't make any sense. So I, I thought I had it down. We had a couple different bikes. We had a walking that they did and we did a warm up, and then we had to figure out what kind of music to listen to. And then I, at the end there was a cool down and then a kind of a reception to your point about getting together and talking. And so I handed out this questionnaire because the objective brain me wanted to know, should we spend more time cooling down? Should we spend more time mm-hmm. on a bike or an elliptical or, at, I mean, at the airdyne? Or how do we do this? Or should we introduce some plank exercises or other? What else do they want? And what was their favorite thing? The favorite thing was when it was all done, they had they got to sit around and have cookies and talk. Was the number one highlight. And yet, I look at that and I go, but Dan, how can you be that uncreative to think that the reason they adhered is because of the social connection they found? Absolutely. Joy. The joy dictated adherence. The training effect is adherence. All I do is if I can create an adherence and the social connection connects them to adhere, the training effect in the mammal takes care of itself. I don't train someone's heart. I get them to adhere to a program. And without a social connection in cardiac rehab, you have no compliance. If you have no compliance, you have no training effect. So to think that that's the first door they have to go through, they have to have a social reason. And it's usually their family that says, hey, I want you to go for a walk with me. You know, your grandkids coming over, we got to get in shape or grandma wants to walk the dog or whatever it is. The social piece of the mammal says, I will adhere to something that I think is completely foreign. And to make that a step off of that a little bit, you know, if you ask the pro athletes, why do they train? They hate structured exercise, but they hate losing more. So the idea that they will find joy in the movement is lost. The expectance of the cardiac patient to find joy and actually sitting on a stationary bike is ridiculous. What they find is the social connection that they get afterward or before or what allows them to be more social because they survived the heart attack. That's what gives them compliance. And it's, yeah. it's frightening. We don't think that way, but we need to. No, absolutely. And, you know, there's there's a lot of good work, too, that's out there, but being put out as far as compliance with nutritional programs and portion sizes and things like that. One of the things we've really gotten away from in this technological society is we're always on something. We're on our phones, we're on our things. And what happens? We eat alone. So people have never eaten alone more than they do today, right? And even when they're eating, they're not even experiencing the social pleasures of being next to people. We've all seen the fun. I think it was on the cover of the New Yorker, right? The entire family, everybody's staring down at their 
at their cell phones. This goes on everywhere, but people are just, you know, they, they're at work, they're at a sedentary job. Then they go in the break room by themselves to stare at their social media the whole time while they're eating usually poor food choices and on and on. And so there's a lot of work that if you're always sitting down with your family, you're eating and you make it more of a social environment, those people tend to eat smaller portions and they eat healthier food. And so I think that really focusing, and I've done this a lot more, even in my personal practice about the way, you know, kind of, I take care of patients that are going to undergo major kind of spinal surgery kind of stuff is focusing on the social impact of the people around them. Cause like I said, I personally see a big, big difference between people that are socially isolated and people that have a good social network as far as their lifestyles and how they can recover from major surgery. Yeah. And I think that the same point of that is that if you look at what happens if they don't, I do think that the mental diagnosis of depression was a fear of a lot of people, but the reality is loneliness leads to a lot of depression and your immune health is sacrificed by that. And I guess it's still, it's why I wrote my first book to the aging boomer. I think maintaining friendships or social connections is something that should be done. And whether it's calling friends and, you know, it's, it's still amazing to me when people are lonely, the depression and how much they go downhill. And, you know, I talked about earlier with you, it, to the point of, if you don't think that's true, you see these in a lot of assisted livings that when they bring in kids or they bring in even pets, dogs, these people's faces light up and you look at them going, what's the connection between that, that we just thought, no, no, they're just kind of quiet people. No, they're, they're depressed and lonely. And so the familiar ties is that, and again, it's what frightens me more about being, keeping these people alive and putting them in nursing homes and no one visits them. You couldn't ask for a, you might as well be in isolation for the last five years of your life. So there's a lot to it. And I think once you deny social connections, in this case with families, it just becomes more and more the norm. As honest as it sounds, depression is kind of depressing when you think about it. It sure is. And if you just, and I, I don't even want to go down this path because it's a whole other discussion we can have that COVID period right? Look at what happened to elderly folks when they were isolated. The ones that were isolated and couldn't see their family members, they had no reason to live. I actually, I have a, a friend of mine and the parents, they were both sick and one was isolated and he just didn't even want to live. And eventually he passed because you, you lose the will to live and it's social connections and the way we weave that into everything else we're trying to do to keep people healthy and well. It's just such a critical component and something, again, as a physician, we get so specialized, we get so siloed, we got to really have all these different buckets. I mean, there are so many different buckets you have to look at for overall health and wellness and the social interaction and connection is so, so important and getting lonely is a disaster, right? Cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, autoimmune disorders you know, how much faster dementia progresses in the absence of, of good social connections, all these things and trying to put together how all of these different things fit together is, is an absolute obsession of mine. And what I was, what I said, when I talked to my colleague, Dr. Nussbaum on one of our, our episodes, oh, I was, saw that. that was fabulous. That guy was fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I've never been more excited about going back, looking at basic science research 
And now trying to tie it all together with what I know and the experiences I've had looking at patients, I'm a lot more excited now about the basic science than I was when I was in med school, because then you're just doing it because you just need to learn it, right? You need to learn your physiology, anatomy, all those things. But now trying to figure out, well, how does mitochondrial health fit with microbiome health, fit with mental health, and how does dieting affect all those things. And then you throw in, you know, how does your cardiovascular, you know, health have to, it's so fascinating. And again, that's why the word rabbit hole, you know, I think there's two things that my wife wants to ban me saying in our house, the word rabbit hole and and the word mitochondria. She said, I can't say mitochondria again, not in any, any kind of social setting. Stop talking about mitochondria. I said, I I can't, I think your wife talks to mine because I got the same two uh, to Sue Barnes. But let me let me go back for a second what you said. Again, you're very perceptive, but if you tie it back to what we know about the athlete, this notion of, of loneliness or depression, and again, it's really about the social connection. So when you see the athlete who retires, they don't know what to do. And so they go through this period of who am I? My social connection was driven because I was an elite name, any of the sports I've dealt with. And now I'm not doing that anymore. So I don't have the locker room of social connection where I belong, where the family was tighter than the military, was tighter than the firefighters. And then you you see the same thing when, I mean, the physician friends of mine, I mean, if you think of a cardiologist who nothing but does with pediatrics, hearts, the size of, you know, let's say a walnut. Now, every day, they that's what they see. And they save these lives. And then they retire. What do they do next? And so they have these bouts of, I have no purpose anymore. I have no, I have no communication. I have no social connection. And I see it with the athletes who said, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't, I can't find the joy. I've got to find a new connection, a new purpose. And I think that's what happens when you're saying with the people that were locked up with COVID, you took away their interaction, their purpose, and now they're left with any, and you go, well, it's not just the COVID, but you see that with the elite young athletic athlete who goes through the same thing. You see it with the 65-year-old. Dr. Fisher was a phenomenal doc who started the TRIA with Sports Medicine Group. And he read my first book and he said, you know, one of the things I looked at when I got older is when I retired, I had to have a reason. He said, during the during when you're working, you always, when you come home at night, you're so excited about what you've done. But he said, now that you're retired, you have to think of it like you're the kid on Christmas morning that you can't wait to get up and open up your Christmas gift. You got to be so excited about tomorrow. And he said, it's the thing that changes when you you have to have a reason to get up in the morning. And again, you never really think of it because you always had a reason because you always had surgeries, no different than your book. But when when you're done through that period of whether it's sports or athletes or aging, what are you going to get up for tomorrow that makes you excited about jumping out of bed? And if you don't have that, you're all those immune health systems that you just went down, mm-hmm. go downhill rapidly, just like they did in COVID. And again, it's, you can't override that. So I, I look at, well, maybe we'll start in a walking program. I go, no, they need to have someone to walk with. Then they will walk. It's not the walking. It's the connection that says, so again, you're very profound because you came out of the spine world and all of a sudden you're, you're asking me these questions. I go, wow, I love a doc who's actually such a broad thinker. So tell your wife, you can say mitochondria today once time. And, right. and it's me. she can call me if you said it. Super Bowl pass, right? So I think number one, you took the thoughts out of my head. It's just, it's strange because this has happened a couple of times already on, on the show. 
the first thing when you were talking about the athletes, all I was thinking about was the doctor's lounge. And this is something that literally I was just talking to one of our employees that I want to write a book about what happens to physicians in the period of burnout, especially when they're about to retire or go on to retirement and how do they then cope with not being the doctor everywhere? Because as you know, many physicians, really, that's their identity. That's really who they are. And when you sort of take that away from them, when they are now the retired physician, now they're not the physician, they're the guy that you see fishing at the cabin. That's a different person. And so a lot of that's, so I think it's all about finding for doctors, for athletes, for anybody always reinventing ourselves and always finding a mission in life. I think, you know, one of my favorite people is this guy, you know, is Joko Williams, who I'm sure, you know, in the, the Navy SEAL, he's always with David Goggins and, and kind of that crew. But the interesting thing is that he always talks about the vets when they come back from wars or they, or they come back from tours. It's like, you always need a mission in life. And when you have a mission and you're passionate about it, life is just better. Because I could just tell you personally for myself, the times in my life where I am the most, I want to say stagnant, or I'm just not quote unquote myself, are times when I don't have a new mission. Even though I'm doing what I'm doing, you know, I'm a spine surgeon, I'm very busy. Unless I have a mission, that's why leading that group and expanding that group has been a huge passion for me and something that really excites me, wakes me up in the morning. But having this mission of getting the information of wellness care, interviewing great people like yourself, I tell you, I have trouble staying asleep at night because I just, I am like shot out of a cannon every day. Every time I see my wife now, I'm like, I have so much to do. I need 50 hours per day to get it done. But when we are in those periods in our life, that's when we're happiest. That's when we feel healthiest. That's when we feel the most vibrant. And this is something that I do talk about with my colleagues and, and with other people. You always need a mission in life. So everything you said was so spot on and so perceptive about how we can help people to really just kind of put it all together and be motivated and inspired. And that's going to help their health, obviously. I have a second book that I'd like to finish. In, and Jim Lehrer, one of the biggest sports psych guys that's been around, and it's he's a big believer in the word purpose. He calls it purpose mm -hmm. as opposed to. And so this idea of having a purpose that you find joy in. And so when we go back, now, when I look at the athlete, again, it's easier. He wants to win the tour. He wants to win this. But you know, if you ask the person who's 55, what's the greatest joy you find? And then you you look at that as the purpose. I want, you know, and you can, it's usually seasonal. And, and, and you talk about these pickleball people. Again, it's like, oh my gosh, what, what do we create with that attitude? But, <laughs> but, but if you find the 50 or 60 person, you know, it's kind of like, I got to lose weight because I have to go to a wedding. It was, was kind of the old 1970, yeah. 80s, 90s thing. But you, know, you get this person who says, my grandkids are coming down for a month and you're going, okay, I got I to gotta get in shape because my grandkids are going to want to go hiking or running. The purpose is that. So you can get them to change their behavior because they have a purpose, but without the purpose, they'll be lethargic and sit there and inactivity is unbelievably destructive. If you're over 40, unfortunately, there's a lot of us over 40. The puberty guy left town. Okay, so you're not you're not exponentially growing. Okay, you're decaying. So you're already on a decline biologically because you can't recover. 
If you accelerate that by becoming totally sedentary cognitively and physically, you're just going to go right down the hill and land the bottom. So I, you know, people would say, well, you're over the hill. The reality is for people who don't have a purpose or a, a reason to be active cognitively, physically, you're just going to lay in the bottom of the hill for a long time. And that bottom of the hill is usually a bed somewhere. And it's just, it's actually quite depressing. And this is a tangent. I'll see if, it, if, if you like it, but people always ask me, what's the best exercise to do? I just go, come on, seriously, what's the best exercise? Find a purpose and I'll tell you how to get in shape. So you enjoy the purpose. But there was a great study that again, it was back in the late nineties where someone said, well, I heard walking is the best exercise. Well, I heard uh, yoga was the best exercise. So they, they did this great pre-post study of looking at heart rates, uh, resting heart rates. They looked at cognitive stuff. They looked at a variety of metabolic stuff. And then they threw in this curveball called square dance. It was bizarre. I mean, so I'm reading this study going, whoever said square dancing was the best exercise because yoga people are like into yoga. Walkers is the greatest exercise. And so they did the same dosage, same number of minutes, and they brought them all back. The square dancers were phenomenally across the board, accelerated, better than the walkers, better than the yoga. They had a social fun activity that was had agility where they had to be. So they didn't they didn't run into their to their partner. They didn't run into someone else. So they moved in three dimensions. They had to find the beat of the music and they laughed the whole time and they came back. Their cognitive was better. So I look at that and I go, why do we all think this? These people just had so much fun that they didn't think they were exercising. They didn't have to worry. And I look at that sometimes and I go it's really quite odd that we think we have to wear the right clothes and the right spandex and the right this or the right that and get the theme going. And your heart doesn't know if the training effect was on these folks was cognitively, emotionally. And uh, I just go, I think fun would be something we could put in. And the purpose was when they got, they could, they'd have more fun dancing. And I go, so I guess exercise physiology can go across all things. Now, the thing that you mentioned earlier with these pickleball people is I think, unfortunately, because they're used to being in one plane going forward, mm-hmm. they don't have backward or right or left. So they end up having these ankle injuries, they fall. So they should get in shape for it. But again, the adherence is because it's fun, but you still see a lot of injuries because the mammal has forgot how to walk backwards. And so they react and they end up having a lot of on the court injuries because of that. But the attraction is it's fun. Yeah, because they want, I mean, they want the social. Honestly, for a lot of people that I know, I my wife actually picked up a little bit of pickleball, but I have a lot of friends now that are big pickleball or some have had actually serious right. injuries, like hospitalizations kind of injuries. But that being said, they love the social nature of it. And it's awesome to be able to say, you know what? We've got this couples tournament coming up in four weeks. It just changes. So they're both exercising and they have a purpose and how that all comes together. You know what I'd like you to touch on actually for our viewers, which is so important about exercise and is that cognitive and the ability to improve neuroplasticity and how exercise and maybe talk about a study or whatever you'd like to do about how exercise in addition to bone density and things like that, but for the mind, okay, how it can improve your aging process. Well, I think the, the biggest mistake we made with in the 80s and 90s with exercise is creating the Walkman. And you allow these people dis, to dissociate when they did cardiovascular. In other words, they shut their brain off. They, they had nothing in their brain. They were totally dissociated. 
And it goes back to some of the stuff that Lair did and another sports psych guy of Atlanta did is they asked these marathon runners, you know, what do you think about when you're running a marathon? And the age group winners, again, these guys are not bad. I mean, they're not bad. They're just not world record holders. We'll think about, well, mile one, I think of my first grade teacher in the second grade and third grade. And that's how they go through the miles. So they're cognitively, but because when you're, when you start to run the front part of your brain just says, this is a, like riding a bike. You don't forget it. So it just goes and you don't really think about it. You get the same robotic pace, but yet they were so excited about then interviewing the, the world record holders. What do they think about? And they were thinking they got these really creative stories and they go, I don't think about anything. I'm listening to my breathing. I'm listening. I'm internally focused so I don't blow up. And they were thinking, well, and want to think about something else. So when you're doing an activity that you can shut your brain off, it goes away. So again, like these square dancers, they always had to be aware of where is this guy coming from? Where is this guy coming from? So it's kind of like, and maybe this analogy is probably easier for you. If you get two 80-year-olds driving their car parallel to each other, both going 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, they're fine. They're both going forward and there's no interaction. But if you have one going 60 and one coming down a ramp, they got to start planning ahead. So cognitively, they got to be thinking while they're doing a task. And so I think there's a, a lot of companies now that are coming out with these boards where, again, it was... You know, if you go back to dementia, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going all over the board, but I'm trying to tie this thing back to you. Mm. You used to say, well, the guy's losing his memory, so let's have him do uh, crossword puzzles. And, uh, you know, we'll know that that keeps tacking. I go, well, the problem is you don't know if he didn't know the answer. And the best analogy is when I watch Jeopardy, people think, well, your memory's gone because you don't know the answer. And I go, no, I never knew the answer. (laughs) It's not my memory. I just don't know the answer. So they would say, well, if these guys didn't know the answer, they go, well, how'd you know he didn't know in the begin with? So the idea of cognitive interaction was they use lights on a, where they, they have to yes. up and then they the blue light, tag the blue light with mm-hmm. your right hand and your left, not just your dominant hand. And so they make them go left or right. It's kind of like the brain of a child when they start to crawl. You know, you watch them and they have four limbs moving and you can see their brain is just so wired going, okay, I got to get a balance. I got to get agility. And so all of that wiring is going on. Once they learn to walk, that all shuts off. And I think if you look at the aging, what they now start looking at is, okay, it's going to be the blue, but only if the number's even. Mm-hmm. And that's what even number is, 2468. And it's not, so the blue light, but it was an odd number. So don't touch that one. So they get movement. And yet when they come back, that kind of cognitive stuff. So it's, it's not just can they repeat something they'd learned as a kid, you got to tax them at the same time. And again, you know, the, the proof of that is you'll never see the NBA player who warms up with the headset on play the game with the headset on. They take it off because they want to be cognitively alert. You'll never see. So I think it's disappointing when I see someone on a treadmill walking in one plane with their hands on the side watching TV. It's like, dude, you, the, 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 your brain's not working. Your balance isn't working. And all you're doing is walking in one plane. And they're also going at three, three miles yeah. an hour. And it's the same pace all the time on a flat right. track. And I go, you know what? Hey, take the dog for a walk. Take your wife out. Take your grandkid out and pick up. Some. So the idea that rhythmic exercise is good for your heart is great. But your brain can shut off during all that because it, the pattern is so repetitive. It's just you just do it. I wish there was more data on that. And as we look at dimension, we look at short term memory loss, the 70 year olds to the 90 year olds that we're going to see, I think the cognitive movement patterns 
that are three-dimensional and both arms and legs have to be moving are going to be the better solution for that because otherwise they just shut everything down. I wish I could answer that better other than I think we have to do a much better job than just having them pretend they're not using a walker when they're using a walker and a treadmill, the same pace, the same cadence, because the brain just puts it on an automatic, you know, right, left, same stride, same everything. I think cognitively it's, it's destructive for them. No, I mean, I, I think that was a great answer. And obviously we see this with a lot of elderly folks. I mean, I, I can tell you some of my healthiest kind of elderly patients, and again, they're self-selecting because if they feel better, they can do these things. But people that are dancers, square dancers, they do all these different things or people that we've got people that are ice skaters. We've got guys that are 70 that are still playing basketball, you know, with their kids when they're doing this stuff, they seem a lot more cognitively well, so to speak. And obviously they're physically better to be able to do that. So how, how that all plays in, but I can tell you, you brought up the, these interactive boards where you hit things. One of the things that I have personal experience with, with my family and something that a Dr. Robbie Sicka, he is a uh, anesthesiologist who actually, he used to do consulting work with the Minnesota Vikings. So there's something called the quick board. So the quick board, basically what you're doing is you're looking at an iPad and it's making, it's lighting up in different places and then depends on where it lights up. That's where you put your feet. So there's, right. there's five dots. So right. I've used that with my own kids to help them, but he was so amazed at how much improvement some of the Minnesota Vikings made by using the quick board as far as their reaction time. Cause they could say, Hey, you know, this linebacker, he might run, you know, a four five 40. However, his initial, let's say one, one hundredth of a second when he first sees the running back getting the ball is a little bit slow. So by putting them on this quick board and increasing and improving their reaction time, he can get to that ball carrier faster. And he's seen tremendous benefit to some of these things that is going to, I believe what you're trying to say is going to correlate with kind of the aging brain and keeping it sharp and keeping the reaction time sharp. Cause obviously as we get older, our reaction time gets slower our neural processing gets slower. So keeping those areas of the brain lit up on a functional MRI, so to speak, is really going to be critical to preserving our memories, preserving our ability to uh, again, be better neurocognitively. If you go back to the elderly, if the third leading cause of death is falls, right, and you, you haven't walked on a flat ground on a single plane, you're going, what about this dying from falling, walking down the steps, alternating feet, and carrying something. And, and, you know, I had a guy ask me a question once. He said, I got to ask you something. Uh, you know, again, it's still amazing the questions that you get. I was flattered, but he said, uh, you know, I'm walking across the, the parking lot to Target. He said, I feel like I'm weaving like left and right. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I got this kind of, I don't feel dizzy, but he said, I just walk in a straight line. I just kind of like, and he said, but I also do a lot of hunting, like pheasant hunting. And he said, you know, when I'm pheasant hunting, I never have that problem. And I said, well, the problem is because you're always looking for the ground and the ground underneath you is always, it's not the same plane. And then and there's grass or there's snow or there's some other thing. So you're cognitively alert for every step. And so that's why you can walk the straight line. So you're focused on walking in a straight line when you walk across the parking lot, that part of your brain just shuts off. And again, I go back to saying the aging brain frightens me, what we shut off. For, and we out of neglect. And then we expect them to be cognitively alert and not fall. 
and yet we don't ever practice it. And I think learning a, a musical instrument would be the same. I think learning a second language would be the same. Absolutely. Or you tax the brain saying, okay, well, we think if you have better blood flow, you won't have dementia. I go, well, yeah, but I think that was, that's like the crossword puzzle. That was 30 years ago. But now we have to, we have these big bunch of people and I'm not betting on a crossword puzzle. If I'm a 70 year old guy, I think maybe I could be a little more than that because I never knew the answer to that to begin with. So don't tell me if my memory's gone. I never knew that answer. So the past failing, that's a little different. But again, it, you know, you ask questions that we have so many people between age 70 and 90 now, it's a disservice to figure out why don't we look at them differently because we have them now. With mitochondria, which I think is interesting for you, I asked that about Lamond in 92 and then in 94 in front of ACSM World Conference. People had no idea what I was saying. They just stared at me like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean is mitochondria? I said, how often do you turn him over? He has the same cardiac output. He has the same stroke volume. He has the same red blood cell count. And yet he doesn't burn a fat. He burns other but carbohydrates. So that's at the mitochondria. Something's different. Yes. And now, now guys like you are going, hey, this mitochondria stuff is pretty cool. I go, well, we should have asked that 20 years ago, but we never had the opportunity. But now you see the environmental medicine going, right. hey, maybe it was all those pellets that he had that was causing a mitochondria problem. And now we see the firefighters going, hey, there's a lot of problems with these guys. And, you know, and a tangent of this is there's a big jump in AFib with uh, triathletes, these elderly men who are doing heart rate intervals. And you're going, Okay, we can learn more as science and, and ability to test is better. So the physiology doesn't change. The mammal doesn't change. How they adapt is what we got to look at. And so guys like you are so cutting edge because you're not just passing them through saying, hey, pass my test, move them to the next one. But the mitochondria stuff is, is really bizarre to me that no one ever thought, you know, that we need to look inside that. That's been around forever. We've had mitochondria, as you know, if you go back to the Krebs cycle and yep. you really said how you produce ATP, either burn a fat or carbohydrate, that hasn't changed. The mammal hasn't changed on that. But yet we now look at it and go, hey, maybe we should look at mitochondria turnover, like we did red blood cell turnover or anemic athletes. But that's what makes me excited about being on this, this podcast. And hopefully I can, you can build off it and, and use whatever else you want. No, I think, I mean, I think it's great. I think uh, the mitochondrial issue is so fascinating as research gets more and more sophisticated and looking at mitochondrial markers and what they're doing with certain disease states. And again, honestly, it's interesting because it's 2024 and we are early in the mitochondrial game. We really are because the more I try to do research on it, like I'll just have a question. Hey, what does mitochondria do here? Guess what? I go on every every resource I can find. I can't find anything of, of any you know real value, but there has been a lot of work done that I wasn't familiar with before. And I've been diving down that. So it's just so interesting that so many of these disease processes that we're finding, like it's pretty straightforward autoimmune disorders, a lot of them, people have severe mitochondrial dysfunction, right? We always think about these rare mitochondrial diseases. That's how we were taught in medical school. Were a a diagnostic one that was, you know, fraction of a percent of the population. Tiny. But now you see it with firefighters that are using, you know, whatever they're smelling that you're going, boy, that cancer stuff is kind of bizarre. And then you look at the environments of what you said, the plastics that you're eating, consuming, you're going, what does that affect? And you're going, well, it doesn't affect his cardiac output. That Those aren't connected. But at the cellular level, the muscle still has to contract. It still has to use 
I mean, we're still inhale oxygen, we exhale CO2. So you look at how much CO2 is produced and you're going, well, that's CO2 produced for doing a lot of work. What's wrong? Why isn't the mitochondria burning fat now? It should get, it should go back to the original mammal that says, hey, I'm at rest. Right. Use the fat. We have unlimited fat. We have a very limited amount of carbohydrates. Why are you burning carbohydrates? Well, because the ATP cycle inside the mitochondria, it doesn't work anymore. And you were saying about with calcium, with, with Nesmom, is that, so why did that happen? And, and can we, how do we get them to recover? And right. how do we get back to having a healthy mitochondria so we we look at this as as a red a red flag in a disease state where we never thought of looking at it before and to me it came up with greg was because when we push him hard he could always recover and the next day or two days he'd be back to having a low rq which is a, a, a how much co2 we produce and i knew he was we could push him again but after the when he never come back i go why doesn't he what's wrong with him why isn't he back to a normal state there's something on. And I go, well, none of this stuff is working right, but his VO2, he's got these really high CO2 productions, but he's he's at a level where he's, you know, at a 110 beats a minute. This is this something's wrong with this. And the only thing I kept playing at, it has to be at the cellular level and not at his cardiac output or stroke volume or or his ability to carry red blood cells. But now guys like you, I read about it and I go, wow, I guess I was uh, I asked the question and people thought I was an idiot. But the reality is something's wrong. And now you see it with guys like you, it's fascinating. No, it's incredible. And so one of the things you brought up with the firefighters and what they inhale, you know, I did lots of research on veterans issues for my last podcast, and I wasn't really aware of how damaging the burn pits that these guys are exposed to is these, the benzene from the tires and all these other heavy metals. And they become like these tiny little particles and so when I was doing research on that, of course, my brain right away, I'm like, how does it affect the mitochondria? Because they're, that PACT Act that was passed that, to help the military guys, it gave defined cancers, defined syndromes that were associated with it. But I asked, so my question when I was doing the research was, how does the mitochondrial dysfunction potentially play into these vets that just don't feel well, or they're just like extremely unhealthy? and don't have defined syndromes or don't have a defined autoimmune disorder. And that is because these tiny little particles are just getting trapped in our mitochondria and they're disrupting the, the, what happens at the cell wall. Right. And then that the pump doesn't work, calcium pours in and it's dysfunctional. And then you can't produce ATP appropriately, which is what I talked about with Nussbaum and concussion, right? Kind of same mechanisms, right? You're injuring the cell. You have these shear forces across the cell that affects everything. And instantly, instantly when a concussion happens, your mitochondria, they misfire and the cell wall gets injured and calcium pours in. And then you get all these reactive oxygen species there that you have all this, all this damaging stuff that happens, how to reverse that looking at it from an athletic standpoint, how do we keep these athletes doing better, but also how to reverse that from a chronic injury standpoint is going to be such a fascinating topic of what medicine looks at to try to get people, both healthy and non-healthy people, better lives. So like with Greg, I mean, the, the variable that we had was because he had, he's got like 40 lead pellets in him. And, you know, by the way, what a stud athlete and, and guy never- Oh, you don't have to tell me I did some research on him for this. Holy no, and, and again, you know, that whole performance enhancing drug crap that went on, to be honest, no one ever asked him, why didn't he take drugs and just, just win with drugs? And he said, I did because I was cheating. But 
you know, with him, what I always said, hey, you know, one of the things I'd love to do is to line up the top 10 tour winners or the winners of that decades from 86 to when he won the first one. The first one he competed in 84, he took third. I mean, so you kind of look at it and go, hey, guy's pretty talented if he just goes into a sport. But I said, let's do this. Let's find a population of 10, of the top 10 cyclists, and we'll shoot five of them with gunshots and we'll, we'll shoot them a film full of lead pellets and we'll compare the lead pellets of those guys across the next three years to the ones we didn't shoot. I go, that's how we'll do this. And they're going, well, I got five you can shoot, but I'm going, well, see, the point is if it's a variable because we had never seen it, you have to figure it out. So the only red flag to me is to go back and look at them as the mitochondria either makes ATP by fats or carbohydrates. And so when you look at uh, fat and an oxygen, you get different CO2s and water so you can look at it. And that's that's what I came back with. And so with the mitochondrial myopathy people, that's something they're born with. But when it comes in and out, and so the environment can introduce that. But I also think that what it goes back to John Q. Public is athletes, world record holders and that level, even the NBA guys, will tell you seasonal approach to training is, is so important to them. And that they don't train the same way along in the same intensity across the year and the next year and the next year. And so you'll find like this year coming up with Paris Olympics, there'll be people in the NBA who, if they can win a championship and have a chance of winning next year, will not play the Olympics because that downtime is so critical to their recovery that allows them to compete again the next year. And, you know, conversely with the firemen, they don't get three months off. They're smelling the same stuff every day. And so when I see these athletes or these people doing the same training program every year, their fatigue is because they're basically overtrained. And yet you'll eventually see them at the mitochondria. Something will be a red flag, but they'll just say, I'm just tired all the time, man. I'm just tired all the time. And I got to suck it up. I got to learn to get through it. And you'll see them, you know, learn that maybe they should take this or take this, but the reality is we're not, they're not supposed to be fit. And that's what we've shown across all the world record holders is that, they peak for events and then they allow themselves to come down. And, and what that means for those people who, who don't understand or, or want to challenge me on it. If you ask the 5k world record holder who, who today runs the 5k again, not anything to do with aerodynamics, not to do anything else was has and the guy that passed the ball or the ref made a wrong call under the mentality you have is that guy should run today, the world record, and he should be able to run it every month for the next year and run the same pace and he should run that for three years in a row. Yet the world record hole goes, no, uh, I peaked for that event. I was the world championships. I had to win, but I had to peak for that and I have to recover from it. And I think what, you know, one of the things we talked about with you is that this notion of being able to hold a peak for a long time and just suck it up and is really quite flawed because we don't see it in the professional athlete world. We do it if they start using performance-enhancing drugs, which, you know, you see that. At a level. Mm-hmm. The mammal needs to have an off-season. And that's why, again, when I go back with the, with the purpose, if the grandkids are coming, let's get you in shape for the grandkids, but then realize that there's going to be a downtime. And so, like, things like Pilates might be a time that you put that in as opposed to doing high steady states or high intervals. And, again, the, the, that same proof of that goes back with these cyclists, uh, triathletes, who now end up having AFib diagnosis because the last 10 years of doing intervals – have scarred their, their heart. So they end up with a fib diagnosis as opposed to taking the downtime where they let the heart recover. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet we don't see that. So the recovery piece affects their mitochondria because you just basically run it into the ground. And that's just the training. 
your point is is powerful because it shows that there are environmental things that we do that affect the mitochondria as well. You know, I'd also just, I'm going to get back to that because I have a question about how you evaluate the kind of mitochondrial health and in, in your opinion, kind of what's best out there. And I'll tell you a little bit of something that, you know, things we're thinking about doing, but going back to the overtraining yep. aspect, which I know you're really big in, how do you tie that into the way that mitochondria are working? I know you say that they're fatiguing, but can you explain that a little? I'm just, I'm just so fascinated by, by mitochondria. Like as far as the way that they work, are you losing mitochondria or are they just not functioning as well? In your opinion, I think that's what you said. And the only reason you know that is if you look at, at the mic, again, this is really new stuff. Yes. From an environmental standpoint. And it's stuff no one, no one's ever looked at before. But if you look again, you go back and say, what is the purpose of mitochondria? It's to take fat or carbohydrate and make ATP. And if you say, in a perfect world, the reason the mammal can store unlimited fat is it prefers fat as a fuel. It doesn't like to use carbohydrates because we don't have a lot of them. And thus the fight or flight says, give me the carbohydrates so I can survive. So if you look at them across time, they become fatigued is when they can't come back down to a rest and say, give me the fat cell. I'll convert that mitochondria. I'll stick with fats. This is what the mammal says. This is the unlimited. I got all kinds of fat cells. I mean, a uh, fat uh, so to use, but I have limited carbohydrates. So when the mammal says, I'm going to burn carbohydrates now, because the fats, they, they take different times. So carbohydrates turn ATP over real quickly, where mm-hmm. fats more, but it's, it's a longer process. So you, that you tax the mitochondria more when, you, when it has to burn a fat. So I think what it gets down to says, we're going to make the simplest, we're going to survive by just burning carbs. And I, and I think what it says is that the mitochondria is so slow or Mm. whatever you call it. I don't know how to describe it from a cellular level. There's probably some guys who are much better at me, but why would the mammal choose when you have an abundance of a fuel of fat to not use it and yet burn a a fuel that it knows will run out Mm -hmm. and you're going because the mitochondria knows it can't use the fat. It has to survive. And so it's going to use what's available to stay alive. Again, the core of every mammal is survival. It's like, why do you want to have a core temperature drop? That's still the mammal in them. So I don't know if it's the the mitochondria is just becoming slower to function. And I think the fatigue is what they pick up on. But, you know, conversely, again, it's all anecdotal. But if you ask the the spouses of world record holders, if they go to an event, they'll know if if their spouse is going to be competitive or not by the mood states they're in. They'll know their resting heart rates are, are getting higher. They just like Mike Tyson before a boxing match. Mike Tyson's not going to walk into a boxing match feeling casual. Okay. So the guys who are going to set world record holders the month before, they're very ADD. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. of course. They on the floor. they're walking around going, you know, I don't see that. I walked over and you're going, come on, it's, how'd you not see that? Because I'm focused on this event. I've got 10 more days to set the world record. Yeah. Afterwards. So I think cognitively you see that, but. And I think it's also why you see these weight gains when they, because they don't burn fat anymore when they're overtrained, why they have a hard time. It's because the mitochondria says, no, I'm going to burn carbohydrates now. It's so unique what you're, what you're looking at right now. But I do think at the cellular level, and I think the other way to, to answer that question, sorry if I'm kind of going from tangent to tangent, but you know, the best way to look at it is to see what do the world of performance enhancing drugs go after? Mm-hmm. Now? 
And if they go after creams that affect mitochondria, they're going because that's the bigger flaw right now. So they're not, they're not looking at giving people red blood cells anymore. They're looking at the cellular level as yep. the best improved performance. So some, like the East Germans did back in the 70s, who filling the East German women's swimmers up with steroids. They didn't know what it did, but they knew that was a flaw. And then they figured out how to dose it later. So medical science will be late because we can't, we can't just throw people, like we can't shoot the cyclists to see if it's lead. You know, we can't expose people to burn pits to see if it's the burn pit. But I, I think you're going to be, in your lifetime, you're going to say, I knew there was something to that in 2024. Now it's common sense or common practice. No, absolutely. No, we're excited about it. So one of the things that we're fascinated about and sort of what we're doing at our wellness centers is all of our modalities specifically have been chosen that are going to target mitochondrial health. And so, for example, we know that when you shine red light on a cell, it's going to be absorbed in the mitochondrial wall and it helps to repair the wall and improves this. This is this is proven science. There's a lot out there on red light therapy. We're doing transcranial light therapies for concussions and, and just overall brain health, that kind of stuff. But what the really fascinating thing is down the road, it's so interesting because we've talked to international companies. I'm talking about big companies and what we've proposed to them is we want to take the modalities that we're doing right now. And we want to start doing mitochondrial markers on all of the patients. So for example, if they're exposed to 60 minutes of red light a week, plus this much oxygen therapy, plus this, and then look at the different variables and then see what's upregulated and downregulated as far as mitochondrial markers. And so it's interesting because we went all the way up to the top. I mean, you're talking about almost to the CEO level on these companies, and these are big, big billions and billions of dollar companies. And we asked, hey, what are the best mitochondrial markers to look at? Because we are doing this project. We want to set up these IRB protocols and these research studies. And literally, you know what a lot of the answer is? You know what? We're going to give you these assays. You can do between 50 and thousands of markers, and then you'll just have to figure it out because no one knows. And it's just so fascinating. Yeah. It's, we're, we're, right now we're backdooring, right? Because I'm, I'm sure you use like VO2 max as a way to see kind of how well they're respirating and what the respiratory chain is doing. So it's looking at mitochondria in a way or looking at, you could look at urine products and things like that, but it's not like, oh, there's this one marker. If that's upregulated, we've got it. We know that we are making a difference. Yeah. Well, again, if you go back to diabetes, if you look at what measuring hemoglobin A1C did, to that world of just looking at blood sugars and then saying, hey, this one shows the average across 90 days. You're going, well, that's the marker we should be looking at the rest of this stuff. And so this is what I'm saying you're trying to figure out is what is a marker we can track just like we track systolic pressures or we track cholesterol over like A1C levels, part of an annual physical that says, but I, again, I think it's kind of like, you know, once the guy's flawed, you figure out, well, the flaw was he didn't get enough sleep or the flaw was he didn't, wasn't hydrated enough. You can look back, but you still need to have a flag that says, we think now that this is, and I think you're going to, you're trying to find that now with treadmill tests with EKGs and looking at heart diseases, right. a treadmill test on a, on a person that has no symptoms, trying to find an EKG that says he's going to have a heart attack. You're going to say, well, let's look at calcium scores. Let's look at something else. That's more powerful because we technology changed your world mm -hmm. drastically. So what you can measure now is just how do you do studies with it? But it's so fascinating that you're you're driven when medicine is 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 not. And, and you know, we have this conversation is that you guys get paid by keeping people alive because 
you know, we want to put a new hip in the guy and we make a lot of money. And, and, you know, when I was doing cardiac in Phoenix, you know, I, I saw a guy that had three heart attacks, never saw that when I first started. And, you know, he had an NMI and then he had a stent and now he had triple bypass and his Medicare is 180 bucks a month. And for him, he can't wait for his fourth one because he's only paying $180 a month and it's going to be $150,000 surgery. Someone's going to pay for it. And he has no interest in it because he can survive that one because he survived the other three. Sure. That's unfortunately the flaw with fixing someone and then just moving them down the line is that eventually someone's going to pay for it. So guys, like you were trying to find a, far, a marker before it's too late where we now he's just a, a consumer of our product, which whether it's a medication or a procedure. Yeah, we just want to make, you know, our group just really wants to make the word like mitochondrial health, metabolic health, household names. Because when you talk to people, I mean, you talk to, I talk to people that you would think know about mitochondria to some degree who just have no interest. They're like, I, that doesn't matter that that's too small. That's on too small a level. That doesn't really make a big difference. And so just getting people at least thinking about these things and the, and the different ways, you know, one of the things we're not going to get into, but it's just fascinating to me is the whole issue of the microbiome and how it affects your kind of your brain health. And it'll be interesting to see how changes in the microbiome and the way, because obviously those things have to, they have to breathe too, so to speak, all these different pathogens that you have. So there's the good microbiome and then there's the bad stuff in there, right? That we're trying to avoid. And, and then how that affects overall mitochondrial health and, and patient's health. But, you know, that's for another time. A couple of things I, I just want to cover here as it's become obvious that we're going to be doing this again. I hope if you'll come back, because I mean, there, there's so many things to cover. We could be here for hours and hours, but what is inspiring you and what's different about your new book that, you know, you're in the process of, of writing and what are kind of some of the additional thoughts? Like, what are you adding into this book? What are some of your epiphanies that made you say, you know what, I have so much more to say on the aging person to try to help them to lead more productive lives. And when we're on the back half. Well, I think the, the reality is, is that you have to accept the fact that you're going to die. And I think you have to accept the fact that if you're gifted 25 more years, mm -hmm. joy in that gift. And to think that it's not a gift to live 25 years longer is wrong. And so you have to figure out what, what can you do, whether it's a charity or a purpose or a role model or whatever, you have to find something and accept the fact that it's kind of like if, if you said, I'm staying at uh you know, the four seasons in uh, Maui or uh, pick a hotel on the, in Europe. We have one here now. We have a four seasons right. in Minneapolis. First yeah. five, let's say, first let's five say star. That, let's say that you're staying there for the weekend and the GM comes up and goes, oh, by the way, you just won the lottery. You can stay here all month for free. And you're going to go, what? For free? Another month? But I was expecting to leave. Nope. You get another month. You're going to go, I, I'm going to enjoy this. I am going to find, I'm going to call my friends and have them over. And I, I think that's the approach that you have to have. You're not going to die young. And I think you have to look at that differently. So share it with your friends, have a friends that you, you can do something with. And if you don't have friends, I think then, then find a charity where you can, you can do something because your legacy is not going to be, and it's sad. I mean, you, you see people say, well, he was a great surgeon or accountant or whatever until 65, but he died at 90. And then there's this 30-year gap of he didn't do anything. And you're kind of going, what happened? Didn't you, you know, you were, you know, it's like, what did you decide to do? Well, I wasn't, I was kind of bored. 
And I think the aging brain is one that I think you have to find a new purpose. I think you have to find something you can do. And I look at it with, if you're 70 years old and your grandkid is taking Spanish and you don't know how to speak Spanish, learn to speak Spanish. The two of you can can practice it together. Say, hey, grandpa, how about this one? And you're going, now he's already teaching you how to text people. He's already teaching you how to use a cell phone. So let him have you teach how to speak Spanish, right? Or or a musical instrument if you haven't done it. But when I was at a conference with um, Monaco, Singapore, and uh, Australia, Sydney, and it was a Zoom call. They, the four of them, is a company called Better by Sport. Phenomenal, phenomenal, based out of Europe. And they had to speak English because I couldn't speak any other language. And these guys were all thinking that I'm intelligent. And yet, only if I can speak English. And I, I look at that, I go, what a, what a terrible thing to think yes. that I wouldn't have learned a second language and that I'm too old to learn a second language. Well, if your grandkid says, hey, grandpa, I, I'm learn- I need to learn German, sign me up. We're going to do this together. That's the thing about aging is it's a blessing to be given an extra month at the Four Seasons. And if you say, oh, you know, I'm just going to sit in the room and look out the window. No, dude, you, you see that sunset? That's beautiful. You see the morning? Get up and do something. And I think uh, selling bring with, with friends or family or is, is, is a piece that would be the best. But uh, again, I, I think the boomer is either going to be responsible for being the people that were invited to a party and this stayed too long, or they're going to be the ones who came to the party and actually made it fun to be old. But, you know, you've had people come to your house and go, man, these people, I wish they'd leave. It's three o'clock in the morning and they're still here. We're sick of hearing stories about the first time we saw the Rolling Stones, man. You gotta, you gotta go. Your generation has got to leave, man. You're just like old, but we were gifted longevity. So I, I think that's part of the, the new one, but I've been very fortunate to be around, you know, docs or, or physicians or, but I would like medicine to be more involved in being, proactive and in, in encouraging these people that just because we can make money off you or Medicare can or social security that it has to be guys like you who are saying, Hey, I want you to, I want you to enjoy the, the, your longevity. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that in addition to diet and all this other stuff is resistance exercise absolutely. as you are older. Absolutely. And can you, I just want you to just tell the whole audience that how vital it is to continue doing resistance exercise as you get older, not just for your bone mass, but for your brain health, for your mentality, for your, you know, psychiatric, from well, a psychiatric standpoint that, and on and on. It all goes back to that cognition that you're going to say, I need to be able to move my right arm and my left arm separately. You know, I, I always said the best thing to learn would be to play drums when you're old, because you got to have a right arm and a left arm and a right foot. Your brain's going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can just, you know, I can keep time this way, but the strength stuff goes back to your mobility or your agility by a lack of weakness in your hips or your IT band mm-hmm. or just all the fine motor skills, your shoulders with piriformis problems, et cetera, in your, in your hip. But you have to have prime mover strength so you can move forward and backwards. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I was funny with, with uh, I was with, again, it's a name, but uh, Schwarzenegger was one of the guys that first encouraged me to write the book. And he said, he said, Dan, you know, I, I'm with these people who, one of the things about the problem of getting old was they always wanted to use a restroom that had a toilet with assisted so they could stand up and stand down. And he said, well, just do some stand by the wall and do, uh, you know, standing squats or just, and they, they thought it was like a, a viral thing that they were no longer going to be able to get up off the toilet. And you're going, no, you can actually strengthen your quads and your hamstrings and you should be able to get up and down. But they thought it was like a death sentence. They never saw it. So they may not have viewed strength training, you know, they think of it as a bodybuilding thing, but all your functional right. prime movers 
are tied to that. And there's a company called Fusionetics with Mike Clark, who's a doc, and, and phenomenal, phenomenal stuff on mobility and the ability of doing strength movements. This isn't about powerlifting. This is about, you know, if you can't get up a flight of steps because your quads or your knee bug you, you're going to have to look at it as physical therapy for you to have mobility back or muscle endurance back. So cardiovascular endurance gets a lot of push and they'll look at cause or look at mortality from having a high VO2 max or keeping it. But the reality is everyday life is going to be limited by these 60 second bouts of strength, muscle endurance things that you can't do. And I, I would say that, you know, even if you did it six months and then did something that wasn't off, so again, this, this cycling thing, right. you do three months, of, but you need to be able to put, I mean, you look at shoulder mobility, people can't get their hand above their head. They can't Absolutely. reach up. You're going, that's a functional movement that you have a muscle for. You just, yours is so atrophy, but absolutely there's, there's, that has to be part of the aging process, at least rotationally three months out of the year where you go back in and then your purpose is, is back to playing golf or playing tennis. But you have to look at that, that loss of strength, that decay is going to limit your quality of life without a doubt. And for people that are not doing it, and I've seen it across thousands, it's such a difference. People that have stayed active their entire lives. And again, you're right. It doesn't have to be powerlifting or anything, you know, super, super over the top. But people who have just generally stayed active, have played sports, have done resistance training, have gym memberships, have trainers, this and that. They like, if you look at the lifespan from, let's say, from going from 40 to 70, that 30 year window. If you're not treating that body that you've been gifted and every day's a gift, like you said before, if you're not treating it and giving it the needs that it's just the way we're built. I love the way you keep using the mammal reference. And again, we're maybe we're not meant to live this long and medical science is, is now keep, you know, keeps pushing it. But the difference between that 30 year window in being active, having a social network, paying attention to dieting, paying attention to toxins you're exposed to. You can go from 40 to 70 and be playing basketball with your kids, or you could go from 40 to 70 and somebody's pushing you around in a wheelchair. And again, not from an accident, not from a genetic disorder, but purely because of the lifestyle that you chose, because our bodies are absolutely going to break down if we're not doing these things to maintain our cellular health. And you said it great before, we are in decline. After a certain age, we are in a decline. The question is, how much can we stop it by all the things that we talked about today? And then potentially the addition of all these other alternative things that I just love now seeing people having benefits from those and just mixing it all together. We haven't even gotten to other things like acupuncture and meditation. Let's and do this. Whenever you want to have me back on and you say, okay, Let's talk about this or this, and and I'm happy to come back. And whatever good or positive that we've done together with people who are listening, I guess you have to look at your life as a gift when you're once you're over 50 years old, and and your quality of life is on you. And understand that you're in charge of your healthcare. Ask your physician how do I avoid this? How do I do this? And you know what is the side effect of being on this medication for this long? And and tell me how does this accumulate? And that's what you do with your patients now. But you have to take more care if you're a person. Your health care starts with you taking care of your health. So, but again, anytime you want to call me back, I'd yep. be happy to come back on and 
You get two mitochondria today before Super Bowl. Oh, you World. gave me two. You only gave me one before now. Uh, it's because now your wife's going to say, no, no, no. I'll give you one, not two. I, I Trust me. You, you got to go in with two. because Okay, I'll that. slip a second one. And I say <laughs> you, gave, you gave me some permission. I think I'd love to have you back to talk about some of the in-depth work that, you know, you've done with, uh, you know, we haven't even gotten into like the real nitty gritty about these professional athletes, but also really want to pick your brain in the future about where we're going with technology and wearables and all these other things. I mean, literally how close are we just to be, you know, like the Apple vision pro, what an upgrade as far as things we could do, but like how far is it a good thing or is it, we're being so consumed with the technology part of it that that we're losing the, the essence. The take home from that is, we create products and then we hope to find a reason to, for you to wear it. <laughs> I think we'd like to have a problem and then try the technology to help it. A lot of times we, we introduce technology with the idea that this should be good for it. You go, no, it's the wrong way. We create insulin because we had a problem. So that's the flaw. You have to ask, why did you create it? Was it to solve a purpose or to sell a product? And so the wearables are a phenomenal thing. But that again, technology, medicine, are all part of our culture. We just have to figure out how the three of them all play together and improve someone's quality of life. But it's an absolute pleasure to be on this call Thanks. with you, this pod. And, and whatever I can do, you, you have uh, my contact information. Yeah, this has been, I mean, it's been a, a tremendous conversation. I think people are just going to enjoy kind of the back and forth that we had, because these are questions a lot of people are asking. I think what's going to happen when when people view this or or they listen to it, I think it's just going to spark them to say, you know what, I really want to dive further down into this topic or that topic, or, hey, I need to get my social network better or, or whatever it might be. So it's been wonderful having you today on, uh, on our show. And uh, I look forward to having you back soon on another episode of Wellness at the uh, Speed of Light. Perfect.